Hello, I'm Angela Dalton. And I'm Lauren Summer. And we are the creators of the upcoming children's picture book, To Boldly Go, How Nichelle Nichols and Star Trek Helped to Advance Civil Rights. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Like many of us, I grew up surrounded by books. I always loved to read, and many of my earliest childhood memories were of or related to books. To this day, I'll never forget those scholastic book fairs and how many things I would buy every single month. And that's one reason I'm always happy to chat with writers on this show, and it's something I plan on doing a lot more of this season. But for today's show, we have two guests who have a new Star Trek book on the way that is very special and absolutely worthy of some fanfare and celebration. Joining me today are Angela Dalton and Lauren Summer, who are the respective author and illustrator duo of the new children's book from HarperCollins, To Boldly Go, How Nichelle Nichols and Star Trek Advance Civil Rights. There's a lot of Star Trek books out there that are marketed for kids, but I think none of them have ever intermingled with real-life events or the people behind the roles. In the case of To Boldly Go, we get the true story of the late, great Nichelle Nichols and an examination of the impact she had for people of color in a way that all ages can appreciate. Angela and Lauren are no strangers to the world of kids' books, and today we're going to get to know them, learn more about their work and the way they create, and understand their love of Star Trek and why this book was so important for the world we live in today. There's no denying the huge loss that not just Trekkies felt after the passing of Nichelle Nichols, but really the entire world. A death that left a giant gap in so many of our hearts. But thanks to people like Angela and Lauren, Nichelle's story lives on, and her efforts will continue to influence people now at a younger age than ever. So let's get ready now to meet two people I was super excited to chat with about a book you're absolutely going to want to read to your kids or just own for yourself. And that's Angela Dalton and Lauren Semmer. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me, we've got not one, but two guests who are here to talk today about uh, a very exciting kids book coming out very soon. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves right now for you guys. Sounds good. Hello, everyone. My name is Angela Dalton. I am a picture book author. I'm based in Oakland, California. I wrote the text for the book that we are going to be speaking about today, which is called To Boldly Go, How Nichelle Nichols and Star Trek Helped to Advance Civil Rights. Hi, my name is Lauren Summer. I am an illustrator based in New York City, and I um, am the illustrator for To Boldly Go, um, and I also illustrate other children's books and do other illustration projects. All right, well, Angela, Lauren, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm very excited to have you guys here today. You are the first kids' books uh, creators I've had in the show, so that's really fun. That's really cool. 
So cool. Thank you. So, yeah, you know, we got a lot to talk about here today, uh, you know, so I want to spend some time discussing your new book that's coming out, but I also want to talk about some of your other work as well uh, and really kind of help educate my audience on what you guys do because, uh, you know, it's such an interesting profession to be a part of, and I don't really get a chance to talk to folks who do what you do here. So uh, I'm looking forward to having you guys elucidate, if you will, uh, what it is to make a kid's book. So uh, before we get into that, though, I want to ask you guys here, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? I mean, did you guys grow up watching this? I'm going to assume the answer is Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that is a big yes. Um, I remember that my first memory was probably seven years old, seven or eight years old, watching. I was the only child and watching it with my parents. Um, it, it was on a every Saturday, I believe it was every Saturday evening. Um, of course, reruns at this point. I wish I was not old enough to be like the original, original uh, launch of Star Trek. But um but it was the reruns, and if there's two things I remember, was obviously drinking a lot of red Kool-Aid because I didn't get to drink it a lot as a kid because I would, like, bounce off the walls. And, of course, Nichelle Nichols as Lieutenant Ohura made the biggest impression on me. Well, that's why my parents didn't give me any Kool-Aid either. So, yeah, I, I, I sympathize with you. Uh, Lauren, how about you? Um, I had I have a similar, somewhat similar experience in that I was an only child, and I also remember watching reruns of Star Trek. Um, in where I grew up, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was on really late at night, and I would stay up really late at night because my parents worked nights. And I remember watching it and just thinking it was like this really amazing, interesting world, and wondering more about it, and just being really, really little watching it. It was fun. So those are my early memories of it, and I think I saw the newer general with the newer um episodes and but i did see some of the older ones when i was little too so i, I kind of recalled some of that when i was doing the book which is fun okay so basically we are three star trek nerds who are also only children okay so <laughs> that's why we're all getting along real good today <laughs> all right so lauren i'm gonna throw this one to you first uh and so i'd like to get a little bit of background information about the, both of you guys and uh I'd like to know what you already mentioned where you were born, but you know where you were born, who your parents are, and what they did, and what you guys wanted to be when you grew up. So I grew up in I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I am an only child. My dad is a Canadian um, um, Caucasian guy. My mom is an African American woman, black woman, and I grew up in a small suburb. I was the only biracial kid in my school, so I had that kind of interesting experience. Um, and I always wanted to be an artist. I kind of always saw myself in that direction. That was something that was, I didn't really know how I would turn what I loved to do into a job, but I just always knew that's who I was. So I knew I wanted to do something like that. And how about you, Angela? Same question for you. So one thing that I'd love to say, um, you had asked, you know, you kind of intimated about the fact of like getting into writing a children's book and what that all entails. And one thing I want to kind of jump into is that usually when you are working on a picture book as a writer, you don't meet the illustrator until after the book is done. So this is really the first time that I'm hearing a lot about Lauren and her life. And it's bonkers to me because I was born in Edina, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis, right? I, I grew up in Minnetonka. I lived in Edina. So, so Angela's uh, mic just like muted itself, but yeah, she just gave a big OMG right there. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's like literally next to each other. And you guys never knew this. Uh-uh. That's nope. amazing. That's pretty funny. Okay, I'll let you, I won't interrupt again. Okay. <laughs> I was trying so hard to contain myself as you were talking. Like, I think I had to mute myself because I was like, no. Um, so I was born in Edina, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis also. Um, my parents, my father was administrator of pension and labor laws. And so we, yeah, exactly. Matthew, you kind of gave me the what? Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, he did a lot of um, negotiation when there were union strikes or pension uh, disputes. And so that meant that we moved around a lot. And so I moved around a lot as a kid. I lived in Chicago. I lived in D.C. I lived in uh, for very brief moments in other towns. Um, and my mother was a buyer at Marshall Fields um, in uh, Chicago. We moved to Chicago. Um, and so they both had really high expectations of what I was going to be when I was growing up, which was a doctor. Um, I didn't get that far, obviously. I, I really gravitated toward creative writing, which led me into a path of uh, being in advertising and digital and tech and um, and then in create kid creativity, kid content, kid content creation. Yeah, that's what's kind of interesting about this particular interview today is that you guys are both focused on, I guess we're going to call it kids content, if that's the right uh, word for it, because 
I don't know the right word for it. So you guys are going to help help me out here with some of the vocabulary. But so Angela, you know, you're talking about going into the world of, of something that is completely far fetched from creative writing. So how did you actually find your way back into it? Well, going into advertising, I became a copywriter. And I really loved writing until I had to start showing my work to clients who would butcher it. And then I decided I really didn't like that very much. <laughs> um, kind of killed my creativity for a really long time. And um, I became a producer because I like to boss people around and tell them what to do. And I was really good at it. And so I became a producer for um, about 10 years. And I worked for an, uh, a small agency that worked on websites and um, kid-focused activities for clients such as Cartoon Network and um, Nickelodeon and Nick Jr. And so that's kind of how I fell into the realm of creating content for kids was actually just working on websites and uh, and activities, online activities and online games. And so um, I lived in Minneapolis. I was living in Minneapolis at the time in 2016. And uh, my husband had a job offer in California that he couldn't refuse. And so we ended up moving to California and I got to start with a clean slate. And he asked me, what is something you've always wanted to do? And I said, write a children's book. And so he said, I think you should do that. And that's how I ended up kind of pivoting into this field. But I did have a lot of background and in, in, in a skill set that was based on some of these other things that I'd done in the kid creation world. That's really amazing to have that kind of clean slate, like you said, just to be able to do that. I mean, I think everybody wants that kind of freedom. That's amazing. You were able to really explore that side of what you wanted to do. And yeah. It was really lucky. I, it was it was luck, sheer luck to be able to have that moment in time. Now, Lauren, you had mentioned that you kind of knew what you wanted to do and you've pretty much been able to stay in that area. So uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about, I guess, what you did, say, after high school. I mean, did you go to an art school to kind of keep going and pursue this? Yeah, I have a, um, I always knew I wanted to be an artist, but it wasn't always the easiest. Um, it wasn't always the most even easy path to get there. I had a lot of ups and downs of doing different kinds of jobs to kind of get me to where I am today too. So I just want to say that as well. So I did go to um, an arts high school and then I did go to art college after that, but I ended up after um, doing university, doing working in another field of fashion and doing publicity and marketing. Um, and so I kind of ended up in that world, which was interesting because I feel like I did learn a lot from that. And it was able to, now that I'm back doing art full time, I'm able to take those experiences and really lean on them sometimes. So I don't think it was necessarily the worst thing that I didn't always work just in art, but I was able to kind of get some different experiences to bring into it. So I, eventually I, I walked away from that world because it just wasn't very fulfilling. And I had an opportunity to, was, you know, and, um, and I found books and books kind of found me and we've just been really good. It's just been the perfect fit since then. So I'm really dedicating my time to doing that. Yeah, regular listeners of this show uh, will hopefully know by now a little bit more of my background. And like, I actually uh, went to art school as well. I went to Pratt in Brooklyn. Uh, and in particular, my major was illustration. My goal was to do like storyboards and film work, essentially. Um, but I also like took several classes on children bookmaking. And like, that was something I also wanted to pursue. Didn't didn't go anywhere, because uh, now I'm doing this podcast and other things. But uh, yeah, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, uh, I guess, some of the work that you've done, in fact, uh, if you can tell us any, any specific details about what you've done. Sure, sure. Um, so I got approached to do my first book was the ABCs of Black History. Um, and I was approached to illustrate that book. And it was this moment of just like, this is such a good fit for me. I'm really excited. And it was a really, really fun project to work on. Um, and so I was able to do that. And that was my first book. Um, it took about, I guess, 15 months to complete the illustrations for that. So books do take quite a bit of time to do. It's a longer project than other illustration projects. And it can be pretty labor intensive because there's lots to do, lots of pages to cover and everything. And then I also did a book about um, Kamala Harris. I've, and then I did this book now to boldly go. And I have a couple other projects in the works that I'm excited about um, that will be coming out too. So I think I'm on almost on my fifth book now. So that's that's kind of exciting. And I've also done other illustration projects for um, like editorial magazines and um, also some things for like cards and um, some stores. So a little bit of everything. <laughs> Mostly books. Now. Books is kind of, I feel like I found my, my place where I belong. So it feels good. And uh, shout out to the ABCs of Black History, because that was a New York Times bestseller. And, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty amazing thing to have. It's a pretty big feather to put in your cap. It, it, it felt good. It was a nice way to start things out, I guess, for books, you know. Um, but really, it was it was such a fun project to work on. And um, it, was, it was a passion project, too. It felt really, um, it felt, I felt privileged to be able to work on it, much like I do with this book, to only go. I felt really privileged to be able to work on it, so... 
And Angela, you've also got a few other things under your belt as well. Uh, just recently, in fact, you had a book called uh, Show the World, which is a very empowering, very inspiring book. I'd love if you can tell my audience a little bit about, about that. Absolutely. Thank you. And first of all, thank you for, you know, giving um, Lauren the shout out about being a New York Times bestseller illustrator. Yeah. Because she deserves it. She deserves it. She's, she's so sweet and like humble. There's like that was it's huge. That is a huge thing. So I was so excited when I was told that she had said yes and accepted this book. Um, made me so happy. Um, yes. Yeah, so show the world. That is my third book, published book, that's come out. Um, it came out in April of this year. I like to call it a love letter to Oakland's black and brown trade of children. Um, Oakland, like many places, but, you know, Oakland is dear to my heart. That's where I live, is, has been going through a lot um, in terms of education and um, access to education. We had 13 schools closed in the la in the first part of the year, and so there were a lot of um a lot of families who are scrambling just to find basic education, basic schooling for their children. But overall, you know, I, I feel like Oakland is that little hidden gem. Um, one of my friends calls it the Harlem of the West Coast because it's just a creative mecca. There's so much amazing history here and there's so much culture artistic culture that draws from that history, whether it's the Black Panther Party um, or Harvey Milk and, and the, the LGBTQ movement. There's just so much here. And I really just wanted to have a book that celebrated how creative the kids who live here are. Um, and, and so that's what the book is. And really, it just celebrates that, you know, don't hold back on showing your creativity, no matter what that is, whether it's dancing, whether it's um, whether it's singing, whether it's spoken word, whether it's fashion. And I also wanted to make sure that the, the book hi was highlighting and featuring um, those types of creative spaces that are important and um, beloved by the Black community as well. Um, there's really like a shortage of those types of books out there to celebrate um, what's unique to the Black community and our, and our creativity. And so I really wanted Black children in the Bay Area to be able to see a piece of themselves, a part of themselves, their environment, um, their lives, uh, their history in a book. And so Show the World is all about just showing the world what you can do and not being apologetic, you know, unapologetically being happy, being creative and, and putting it out there. Yeah, that's a great lesson to hear. And, uh, you know, since we're talking on the subject of kids books, if you guys have written, let's go a step further. and Let's talk about kids books that you read. And uh, I especially want to know, you know, being a little kid, uh, you know, I can remember a lot of the books I read that like left uh, an indelible mark on me and I can still remember to this day so vividly. So, uh, you know, I'd like to hear from you first, Angela. Um, Tell me about some books you remember as a kid that left a big mark on you and maybe kind of pushed you in the direction of wanting to make kids' books yourself one day. Um, the books that I read have no business being anywhere near kids. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> when I was eight years old, I, I read James Joyce. <laughs> I don't know how you all like move through the world as only children. But as an only child, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the library. Both my parents worked, they were busy, and I loved to read, thank goodness. And so I spent a lot of time in the library with little to no supervision. So the, my first books that I remember having impression on me were all written by Stephen King. Somehow I came across the horror section in my library. I got Cujo. I took Cujo home, scared myself silly, and then I was like, what else has this man written? Um, but <laughs> they definitely left an impression on me from not just the horror aspect, but, you know, the way that he writes about people and the backstories that he gives them. And then there's always just this little kind of um, magical element to them, a supernatural element to them. And I think that's really what spoke to me, loving science fiction, having grown up on science fiction and a family that loves science fiction and computers and technology. I really liked... Um, I, I love that kind of supernatural element that he had in some of his stories. How about you, Lauren? Were you busy reading about Ed Gain and Jeffrey Dahmer? Or uh, were you reading it's something so else? It's so funny. I had the same. I'm just kidding. I did spend a lot of time. When you said when you shared about the library, that, that, that kind of conjured all these images of me and memories. Because I did spend a lot of time in the library as a kid, too, just like milling around, finding things, picking them up, like flipping through things. I definitely um, gravitated to lots of art books. I found a lot of art books when I was at the library, like looking at, you know, different artists, like, you know, Picasso, Degas, like just looking through all the different you know imagery and that was always really fun I remember one of my favorite books when I was a little kid was Corduroy 
Um, and still love Corduroy. I still think it's kind of one of the best books ever. Um, it's just kind of about finding your your idea of home. And it's it's something I think is just a really universal um, idea. And I just always just love the book Corduroy. I also really love um, Madeline, which I know is like a really popular s- series, but I just love Madeline. I've always loved the Madeline books. I think it, I love travel. And I think that looking at those books as a kid who didn't really get to travel a whole lot kind of opened up the world to me. And that's the beauty of books. I think is that we get to see places we don't typically get to see. So it, it helped me. I think it was those books left an impression on me for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, both of the books that you guys have made in the past have been about identity and your identity as a person of color. And, you know, I, I grew up in New York, so I'm a, a part of the New York public school system. So I had, you know, access to a lot of things I think a lot of other folks around the country haven't had access to. And a lot of types of thinking a lot of folks haven't had access to. So uh, I'd love to hear from each of you. And we can start with you, Lauren. Uh, when you found maybe the first time you found a book that you saw yourself in. I mean, probably back to Corduroy, that has a um, a girl that was similar to me, but I think it, I mean, you bring up a really good point. I think that, and that's why I'm so glad Angela, I was just thinking as Angela was talking about the books that she makes, how wonderful it would have been to have those books accessible to me as a child, how I might not have felt like an outsider the same way. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, Corduroy was a good example. My mother really searched out for things and, you know, she's a really avid reader. So she was always looking for things. I had a lot of examples in hall at home of art of books, of music, of culture that represented um, our culture, other people's cultures. So we had a lot of that in our house, around us, outside of our house, not so much. But I know at home that was there. I think that that was really a huge, um, it left a huge impression on me. And it's something that I think is really important, even if you can just do that, even if you don't live in the place that has those things accessible, even having something in your home that you can look at every day is so important for kids. So I think I, I owe my mother a lot for just having great art, great music, all kinds of different, from all different cultures, including our own around. Yeah. Hope that answers your question. <laughs> it definitely does. Yeah. And Angela, what about you? I mean, uh, what, what was the first book you can remember that you kind of saw yourself in? Oh, this, I mean, this is such a great question. And, you know, again, same lived experience as Lauren, where, you know, it internally in my house, there definitely was, you know, there were books. They weren't necessarily children's books because there weren't a lot of children's books per se, picture book age books um, that showed the black experience when I was, you know, in that, in that age range. And, and so, um, you know, my parents tried to do a lot around that, like, you know, having like Ebony magazine or jet magazine, other ways to kind of make up for that um, in terms of literature. But I would say that for me, the first book where I saw myself, saw myself, was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Dr. Maya Angelou. Um, it was the first time that I saw a Black girl who was who had a family who loved her, but also she was too scared to tell the truth to. And I know that there were things that happened to me outside of my home, um, racial things, race, race, racism-based things that I would be really scared to tell my parents about. And once they gave me that book, I think it gave me a voice to know that I can I could talk about those things. I could as hard as they were, they were okay for me to share that I was not being treated well. I was not being treated equally. That there are people who were treating me awful because of the like the basis of the the color of my skin. And so I just remember that book having a really profound um, effect of me understanding what having a voice meant. You know, this kind of reminded me of like one of the books I remember having as a kid, because, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, horrible scarring things like this. Um, So, you know, uh, I, I'm a nice Jewish boy from New York. And uh, for some reason, you know, my dad's not a comic book reader, but he had uh, both volumes of Mouse. And I read that. And, you know, again, at the first age I read it, I didn't quite understand it. I, I certainly did not, because I think it was probably in like third grade when I found this thing. Um, so, you know, but that, that kind of goes into this question here where, you know, basically my, my first kind of real viewing of this was between Fiddler on the Roof and Mouse. And, uh, you know, we're, we're basically talking about two very polar opposite things here, but uh, essentially, you know, Mouse in particular, it's basically, you know, it's Holocaust trauma porn in some ways. And, uh, you know, it, Fiddler on the Roof is a different kind of trauma, but that is essentially the media that I'm seeing my nationality portrayed in. Uh, so I'm wondering for you guys growing up, I mean, you know, you're seeing one thing on TV, maybe you're reading something else. Uh, I mean, how do you really like find yourself within what's happening in media? I mean, again, that's why Star Trek, the original series was so, the, the impact is so impactful um, to see Lieutenant Uhura 
in a place where there was, it wasn't just about diversity. It was about equity. Mm. You know, she had a voice with these three other male identifying individuals. And, and so, so that was impactful, you know, at a very young age to see, to see her not only just on the spaceship, but she had commanding power and she used that power. And, and then that power went beyond, like, she just felt solid in her blackness. She felt solid in her beauty and she didn't try to make herself smaller. She, she stood out and she stood her ground. And so that's why Star Trek made such an impression on me as a child. That, that's such an important point because I think we, the examples you see in media, especially when we were kids, weren't what I saw. Like I saw women who worked as some women who had, who worked hard, who were strong, who knew who they were. And you just didn't see those examples the same way. But with um, Star Trek, you did see that example of the Hero because she was that. She was strong. She knew who she was. Like, and she, um, she had agency. She commanded her, what she was doing. And she, you know, she was in charge. And you didn't see that the same way. So there was this, always this sort of disconnect. Well, this is my reality. These are the women I know, and this is not what I'm seeing in the media. And so when you do see those examples, you do attach to them because you're like, this, this resonates, this clicks, this makes sense, this tracks. Like, I don't know women who, I, every woman I knew was strong and, and worked hard. And I just didn't have those examples of black women who weren't that. So that's why also why this book was just so important to me, because I felt like this is a story that needs to be told on a bigger scale for children. So it was exciting to, to be able to do this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of these young experiences that I'm bringing up here, you know, in, in particular is because, you know, I feel like as much as you're writing kids books for kids, there's also probably a part of you that's writing it for adults. And, uh, you know, I think that's a modern trend we've really seen, especially and more so outright in books in the last like 10, 15 years where, yeah, it's a kid's book, but adults can get just as much from it. I mean, I uh, just think of animation off the top of my head. I mean, Bluey right now is like one of the most popular kids shows out there, but like Every adult I know watches that. Uh, so, you know, and I do too. So, uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you guys think about this modern trend of writing kids' books, ultimately for adults. And, uh, I mean, is this something that you've done with your book so far? I can go, I guess, a little bit. Because I think about that a lot. I think about when I make my art, who I'm making it for. And I do really, really try to make it for kids. I try. I know adults need to need to like it to pick it up to buy it. But kids ultimately need to read it over and over again to make it something that leaves an impression on them they want to keep around, you know? And so I think a lot about um, actually what kids want to see and what I like to look at when I was a kid and what, how my perspective. And so when I think about, you know, composition or color or anything, I, I try to incorporate what their view of things would be and what would make sense to them and not, not oversimplify things in any way whatsoever. Cause I don't think kids need that at all, but more so just tell it in a, from a point of view that I think will, um, make sense to them and resonate and, and they'll pick up information from and take information from. So I, I, I try, I actually try to remind myself not to make art for adults, but to make it for kids, <laughs> even though, you know, we do, we can't help, but have our, you know, point of view on things, but I try to like find little Lauren in there a little bit and like try to make stuff for her a little. So I think for myself, I hope to never grow up. <laughs> so I feel like picture books. That's so I personally have a hard time when people ask me, so what age range is your, are your books for? Because I believe that they're for every age range. Um, you know, some of my books could be given as baby shower gifts or graduation gifts. Um, other of my books can be given, you know, if somebody's really struggling, you know, like uh, Show the World, this book about creativity. Not, it's not just for kids. It could also go to an adult that's really struggling with their creativity. And I've, um, I've had the fortune of, of, uh, uh, being an educator and teaching people about how to write picture books. And the one thing that I always tell people, because they always say, you know, like, I don't know what to write about and I don't have inspiration. And I say, always go back to who you were as a kid. What were the things that you liked? What was the thing that you would do way into the, you know, the midnight hours that your parents had to like pull you away from or tell you to stop doing? Because that's the thing that you really are passionate about. I don't think we lose that passion for things that we love as a kids, just because we get older, we just have responsibilities, right? And we just have obligations and we lose touch of that. But I think that core nugget, that seed of what you loved as a kid is always with you. And so when I write my books, I just, I write more of just from the standpoint of like, what does somebody need to hear right now? It doesn't matter their age. It's just what is the sentiment that I think that would be helpful in their journey as they navigate this weird blue marble that we live in. 
Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. We do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or... Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. All right, so Lauren and Angela, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion right now. Let's finally spend a lot more time talking in depth about To Boldly Go. Uh, so we already kind of know you guys have not really met too much before. I mean, I know like this is like the first time you had like this kind of face-to-face time, which is real cool. But uh, I guess let's start here at the beginning uh, with you, Angela. So let's talk about what was the initial concept of this book here. Where did this idea come from? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it goes back to I was just searching for a new idea, something that was interesting to me. I got into this kick for a while of just reading people's memoirs and biographies because I just always love to know what struggles people have gone through and how they've overcome those challenges. So I was reading some uh, some biographies and autobiographies and memoirs, and I was at the grocery store. This is actually where I came from. I was at the grocery store, and it was the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and Time Magazine did this beautiful, you know, standalone, limited edition um booklet about Star Trek. And so, of course, I had to snap it up. And I just started reading through all of the essays um, that people were commissioned to write about the the Star Trek as the series itself and how it got its start. And then about Gene Roddenberry and then about how um, Desilu Productions got involved and how this wouldn't even have happened without um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, which was kind of mind blowing to me. Um, and then, you know, so I'm just reading all of these things and, and, and what really struck me, there was a thread about Nichelle Nichols and her impact, not just 
um, being Lieutenant Uhura, but staying on the show up against facing all of this racism that she was facing at the time. And then the string of how she went from being on Star Trek to deeply, in, you know, being impactful of diversifying NASA was was just such a story that I could not like leave out of my head. There was just something that was calling to me that was she was more than just this this woman, this character. And so I got her biography and started reading more about her and I just could not let the story go. And then I'm going to say about a month or two later, I was watching Drunk History and they had played out um, the meeting um, that this book is about. And um, I don't know how detailed we want to get into it, but when I saw them portray this, this really substantial and important meeting that kept Michelle Nichols on Star Trek, I just was like, I've got to write a story about this. Like there's, you know, and so I did some research and I was actually really surprised to know that there had not been a, ch a picture book, a children's book about her yet. And so I just took that as a wake up call that I needed to do it. So, all right. So in that case, you mentioned that that was the 50th anniversary when you first picked up that book. And right now we're recording this interview. It's like the 56th anniversary. So that's a long time from inception to production and publication. So uh, I guess now we're going to start talking about a little bit of the actual process of how this gets made. So how the heck does a kid's book get made, Angela? Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> a big question. You're right. Where do you guys start now? You got this, you got this idea. Got What's the next? idea. You're doing a lot of research, a lot of research. Um, you start writing your first draft. And um, I want to say this was, this probably took me about 22 drafts. Um, drafts and revisions. Um, so there's a lot of crying when you're writing. Um, doesn't matter what kind of book it is, um, because you know you just want to get it right. And and I started to realize revision after revision, it started getting bigger and bigger. And you know your brain starts taking off. Like, well, what if Nichelle Nichols reads this? Is she going to like this? What is happening? Why should? Why am I telling this story? And so it's a lot of really motivating yourself not to second guess yourself. Um, but after I got done with those 25 revisions, um, I sent it to my agent and she said, number one, I, I didn't know that this happened. This moment happened in her life. And number two, I think we're going to sell this because it's just, she's, she's just a, like, you know, a national treasure and not a lot of people know this about her. And so Harper Collins was the publisher that acquired it. And, um, you know, you go through it. So even though I went through all of these rounds and rounds and rounds of revision, that's never over. There was still more and more rounds of revisions with my editor. Um, I want to say we probably went through another many, many rounds of revisions and then legal gets involved. So there's lawyer revisions and it was a lot. It was a lot. So, you know, you made that you put that timestamp on it, Matthew, that, yeah, I had the idea in, you know, that'd be like 20 uh, 16, I think that was. You're a writer. Don't worry about doing math. I'm not going to do any of the show either. You're great. Um, and, um, but then, you know, here we are, it, it's like literally probably about five years since, um, to see the book actually like, you know, and I still don't have the actual copy in my hand yet. Hopefully it's coming soon, but there's a long period because there's just so many people that are involved, um, just even in the writing, the text, like I said, I mentioned, you know, there's copy editors that are legal, legal that gets involved. And that's probably even before Lauren gets to see the um, the finished man manuscript. Well, on that note, enter the artist. Uh, so, Lauren, when the heck do you come into this process? Uh, how how early or how late are you showing up? I'm pretty late. Um, I'm pretty late in this process. I maybe one or she. There's maybe by the time I get involved, there's maybe a couple minor changes to the manuscript. I'm looking at pretty much the manuscript because when I do it, I have to um, draw per page. So we've, it's already divided up to, it's laid out into, this is going to be on this page. This is going to be on this page, if that makes sense. And then I have to illustrate for it. So it's pretty done. It's pretty done. So, and it takes, it took, I think this book took me, don't quote me on math, but I 18 months, maybe almost to, I think we, we just, we finished art. Um, yeah, maybe 18 months to do the art, maybe a little bit longer, even maybe a little bit less it, it, over a year way over a year to get the art done for the book. And you have sketches. There's lots. I have the same process of 1 million revisions, changes. And especially when you're working with somebody who is a real person, you're, you're, you want to, you really want to get it right. You want to make sure you're getting everything right. And you want to make sure that everyone feels really good about it. Um, 
And again, legal gets involved. You, you know, they have to make sure that, you know, you're, you're representing things right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's important that you do things perfectly. So we take our time, I think, with books to make sure it's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people might be hearing 18 months and thinking like 18 months for someone to illustrate a kid's book. Like, that's crazy. That makes no sense. They don't all take that long, but I think um, they definitely don't all take that long. Some people get books done really, really quickly. But this, this particular book took that, it took more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my, my question basically about that is kind of a follow-up to what you do as an artist, because I think a lot of folks who listen to the show, I hope that they understand uh, and appreciate what artists do and what they, and how long something takes to make, honestly. And in the case of kids' books especially, I mean, it is a true art form to be able to illustrate something for kids. And in a very simple style, it's almost like, you know, if I can make a comparison to the Beatles, you know, it's very hard to make a, a small, catchy song like what they did. Um, yeah. So in the case of doing, like, children's book artwork, I mean, it, it is deceptively complex. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do, how you break things down uh, to make it basically good for adults, but great for kids. Uh, and also just some of the technical stuff, what you do, like, you know, are you working digitally with this book? Yeah, I do. I work digitally. Um, I actually work, I like doing both, but I work a lot faster digitally and I can make changes a lot quicker. It's just, it's just moves things, makes things like way quicker if I work digitally and I like working digitally. So I work digitally. Um, I use an iPad to do most of my illustration on, and then I use a um, Photoshop so I put things in Photoshop and do more, um, more drawing through that too. Um, and then what was the other, you had another question. You were sort of asking about how I think about it. Yeah. Right? I, I had a long rambling question here. Yeah. Where no, I, I, yeah. I want to touch on all your points. I think one thing you said was that how do I kind of lay it out? I think I read the manuscripts like about 15 times and I try to forget about it <laughs> for a little bit and just kind of like not think about it. And then I, then I start to usually have like ideas, like I'll just be walking or not paying, not usually when I'm not trying to sit down and draw, I'll start getting kind of some ideas about, Oh, this would be a really cool way to show this. Or, Oh, I definitely want to do this with this part. And I don't typically do the book. Like here's the first page. Now here's the second page. Now here's the third page. It's, it's, it kind of comes together differently than that. Like I'll be like, okay, for spread 10, I definitely want to do this. I have this really great idea for this. I'm going to do this. And usually I end up doing like the first page last because there's a lot of pressure on the first page of getting, you know, the, the introduction to be like really, really perfect. So it doesn't always go chronologically. And I try not to put a lot of pressure on myself because I find when I put a lot of pressure on myself, it just doesn't make good art. So I try to just have, give myself, and the good thing is news is, is, um, publishers know that they don't try to, they give you lots of time. They're not like, we need to see something in a month. That That's not how it works. They want to give you time to, you know, you know digest everything and come back to them with something that's good so that's kind of my process you know what i was saying about your work too before is like how you know it looks simple but it's definitely not simple it is a pretty complex thing to do and accomplish i I could tell by that eye roll you're just like yeah no totally it's really hard to think (laughs) it's like i know i i have i work a lot with simple shapes and i work a lot with like I don't know how to describe it. I, I think a lot about, like, I don't try to draw things, like, perfectly. I try to draw things um, off of, like, nostalgia and memory. You're trying to get the essence of something, basically. Yeah, the essence. So it's sort of more of, like, a feel. It gives it more of a feeling to things, if that makes sense. It's like Nestor a feeling. Yeah, so, but it does take a lot of time. Like, every there's a lot of people in this book. You've seen it now. So, you know, yeah. there's, like, a page with, like, a bunch of people. That took, like, a really long time to do, you know, and getting all the little details and, you know, you, you go back and you make changes. Oh, I need to change this. Or I want to do this color different or this or that. Or, you know, and then the publisher comes back and they'll say, oh, let's, what if we try this? Let's try this instead. And you want to do that. And so it does take a lot of time. So you have to kind of be, you know, give yourself time to set aside a lot of time to do it. And, you know, I'm showing folks right now who are watching the video version a few pages of the book, but ultimately I can't really show a lot because of legalese. We've said that a bunch of times now with the legal folks, and this brings me <laughs> to my next question. And that's, you're doing a book about Star Trek. So you've probably got HarperCollins on your butt. You probably have Paramount on your butt. I don't know who else is going to on your butt, checking over your shoulder, trying to see what's okay. Uh, so I'd love to hear what it's like having this kind of oversight. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say name names of who said this or who said you couldn't do that. But like, you know, one of the things I noticed, for example, was you, there's no actual Starfleet insignias in the book. And that's probably got to do with licensing and cost or something. So, um, you know, whoever wants to answer this one can go ahead. Because I know it's just a complicated thing that affected both of you. Um, so, yeah. How does Paramount, how does HarperCollins, how does the legal side of making a kid's book when you're dealing with something that is licensed fit in? I think with the, I know with the art, we just sort of, um, I, they really didn't give me a lot of, um, like guidance in that they were sort of like, you know, draw. And then we just made sure that we, you know, we, we, um, I had a couple rules I needed to follow, but basically I always had a lot of free reign to just do as I wanted 
don't know how it was for you, Angela, but that was my experience. Yeah, it was. I mean, there were simple guidelines in terms of, you know, we didn't name names like you mentioned, Matthew. Like we didn't we don't have studio names in there. We didn't have we didn't use any of the actual Star Trek um, insignia. And to be honest, like a lot of one thing that I did want to kind of mention is I think that's really important for both um, Lauren and I is the research. Um, I think I probably spent more time researching than I did writing um, because I wanted to make sure that I represented, um, you know, the time, the span of time frame, because we talk about, uh, you know, her as a young girl, and it spans to her now being a woman, um, as an actress. And I think we all have ideas of what that time frame was like, the civil rights movement, um, because we've seen so much of it in, in, in documentaries and films and, and what have you. But, but there's a very realness to it that I think evades, media, meaning there were real things happening that weren't talked about. And, um, and so that, so circling back to your question, it was the, in my research, I just made sure that anything that I did pull out or talk about by name came from a sourced material. So her um, memoir, I used, uh, you know, was beautiful called Beyond Ahura, Star Trek and Other Memories. Um you know, and, and there's just hours and hours of of interviews with her as well as the other um, um, actors that she her that she worked with and directors and what have you. And and so there was I, I would say that probably more of my time was spent researching because I didn't want to run into any legal issues for that particular reason. I really wanted to make this about her and her story it, because that's what it is. It wasn't about the studio really. It wasn't about anybody else. Um, so. Th- our text really, I believe, focuses um, very closely on Nichelle Nichols as a person. Well, let's talk about her with a capital H. Let's talk about the queen, the late, great Nichelle Nichols. So did either of you get a chance to meet her? Uh, do you know if she saw the book? Uh, any experiences with her? Um, no, I uh, I had this grand master plan. And then this thing called the pandemic happened. Um, she, I know, oh, that darn pandemic in 2019, I believe there was a plan for her to have a farewell tour yeah. and in Burbank, California. And I had planned to go to the uh, farewell tour that I was going to pay the money for the meet and greet. So I could tell her because I didn't have the book to show just to tell her, you know, I've written this book and I would love to send you a copy. I was hoping to meet her people so we could have a conversation about it. And then the pandemic happened. So unfortunately, um, I was never able to meet with her and I'm really sorry and sad that she's passed. Um, but I also know she's dancing in the stars. So I know that's, that's how I hold her in my head. Lauren, did you ever get a chance to uh, meet Nichelle? No, I didn't. And it was, it was, um, it's, it's sad that, you know, you spend so much time, you almost feel like, you know, you don't know someone, but you, you feel so invested, you yeah. know, and it's just like when she passed, it was just like, no, really? Like, it's just, I don't know. I felt it, it was, a, it was a sad feeling. Like, um, but you know, I didn't get to meet her, but you know, I think like Angela is saying, she's definitely dancing in the stars somewhere for sure. Yeah, I remember that farewell tour very well because I, I, in fact, actually, you know, my, my girlfriend went to it when she came to New York Comic Con, I believe it was. And so she got to meet her and had that experience. And, uh, you know, I'm sad you guys didn't get to have it. But if it makes you feel better, I didn't have it either. So, uh, you know, all three of us, at least uh, for better or for worse. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that she's very proud of what you guys accomplished in this book because it really is a wonderful book uh, in so many levels, not just as a kid's book, but the subject matter. Uh, what you guys discuss in this book here. And that leads me to my next question. And, you know, a big part of this book is about what we talked about earlier, about identity. And it's about racism. And it's basically a children's book that confronts racism. And, you know, it's sad to say, but it's true. I mean, this book is still relevant here today in 2022, 2023, and beyond. It's sadly still going to be a relevant thing. So, you know, as you're writing a kid's book and you're illustrating a kid's book, how do you come to terms with the fact that you're dealing with some pretty adult, mature themes? I think that you know, kids deal with these things too, to a degree. And they're pretty, they're more aware than I think sometimes we give them credit for. Um, And I think that it's empowering to know that, to be able to, how do I say this? It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it gives them tools, you know? And so I think for me, this book, I looked at this and I was like, wow, do I resonate? I, I'm obviously not an actor 
an actor. I'm obviously was never on Star Trek. I obviously don't have a lot in common with Michelle, but I did. I do relate to her sort of as a creative black woman in the sense that like, you know, sometimes we, I feel like, you know, we're kind of pigeonholed or we're, you know, we're sent in, you know, we're, we're sort of looked at a different way or we're not given opportunity, if that makes sense. And so I feel like this book offers so many good tools for people. When you read it, you walk away and you're sort of thinking, wow, like the shell can keep going. I can keep going. And so we are confront, we're confronting these big issues, I guess, but I think it's kids are going to walk away with like feeling empowered from it. I think it's great. And I think all kids can feel empowered from this book, not just black kids. So it's just, it's great. You know? Absolutely. I love that Lauren used the word tools because I think that is really important. Like there's so many different, you know, there's so many different ways to, to talk about racism in this country. And um, obviously it's a topic that is very much discussed and very important, especially with book bans that are happening across the country. The erasure of blackness in history seems to be um, a, a something that's happening, um, you know, which is so weird to think of in 2022 um, that we have to worry about erasure of anybody in this country. But here we are. Um, so what I'm really proud of with this book is again, to, to piggyback off of what Lauren said is that I hope kids will look at this book and not only see what Nichelle Nichols had to endure and how she was able to endure it, um, but that they will also understand the impact that she made and the impact that all of us can make. And um, because I think that was something for Nichelle Nichols that she, she found out when learned was, was her impact of being on the show. Um, she talks about this in her memoir of how, you know, she just looked at it like an acting gig, but it wasn't until this moment that she realized that she was making real impact, historical impact. And, and, you know, but, but that wasn't what she had set out to do. And I think that's always an important story to show kids that people who make impact don't necessarily wake up in the morning and say like, I'm going to fight racism. You know, like that's just not what any of us do. Um, but we are struck with a moment where we make a decision, like a, you know, a, a fork in the road. And, and the hope is that they'll see she made the right decision. So then they will be empowered to make decisions that not only benefit them, but will benefit other people, other people who are marginalized and who are th being threatened with erasure and that they'll speak up not just for themselves, but for others as well. I think you both are psychic because that was literally in my next question here was to talk about the fact that right now books are being banned again. This is like such a hot topic in the news and it shouldn't be, but it is. And uh, you know, Lauren, you actually said something I want to pick up on too with this question, you know, because this book, obviously, it deals with racial issues. That's really the crux of what this book is about. And right now, so many libraries are deciding they don't want this or they don't want that, and it's horrible. Uh, and on the other side of things, too, we're going to have then certain places who are going to decry the book just based on the fact that they're going to claim that you're indoctrinating young readers to wokeism and that kind of garbage. Uh, the book is certainly targeted for one audience more than another, but Lauren, you said it really is a book that is inclusive. And it is meant for everybody. So what makes this book inclusive? What, what, what is it that is going to attract everybody to want to read this book and not just be just for one exact type of people, even though that is a very important person to have read this book? Yeah, I mean, it's it definitely I think that um, it's it's for it's for everyone to read. I think we can all benefit from black history is American history. You know, it's everyone's history. Like we, you know, and I think that all children can read books about black, you know, leaders and, and benefit from the struggle, you know, benefit from the, the, our stories and even our struggles at times and how we overcome them. And I think that, you know, picking up books by different people who look different than you, whether they're, you know, black, Jewish, you know, you know, Chinese, whatever, you know, who are picking up different books and reading them is, is the way that children will become more interesting people, you know? And, um, I guess that's why I think this book is for everyone is because I think that black history is for everyone. <laughs> I don't know. It's just hard for me to look at it any other way because I've always read books about every kinds of people. So I just, it's just funny to me that like you were saying that people would think that they should just read about books about people like themselves. It's just like so sad. Like what's the point, you know, the point of reading is that you get to read about other people. You know, the book is, I would say like, you know, the book definitely, I, I think is, is, it will be very empowering for black black children and that is the audience you know but i think that everyone should read this book lauren i think the next book you should do should be the abcs of colonizing yeah right i mean seriously uh, angela what are your thoughts on this topic here this is a hot topic it's it's really boggles my mind that you know we're here in this modern age and book banning is now a thing again like 
what what is this this is like this reminds me like the days when D D was suddenly you know the devil's book you know <laughs> Yeah. You know, I recently read or heard something that William Shatner had made some comment that Gene Roddenberry would be like rolling in his grave if he saw just how diverse the the Star Trek universe has gotten. And that just seems so funny to me, um, because if anything, Gene Roddenberry was about diversity and inclusivity. That was like the whole point of this of the show. And it seems to me that he would be rolling in his grave that to your point, Matthew, that we're in 2022 and we just can't even show each other common courtesy and simple respect. And I think that would be more, that would, that would probably be more demoralizing to him than the fact that his series is still running in some capacity and it's for everybody. And that continues the mission that is for everybody and everybody should see themselves in this, in this TV show. So if anything, I hope that this book is an extension of that, of of showing that inclusivity and diversity, as Lauren is speaking to it, but also that it will entice children to go and watch the show, go and watch Star Trek, whether it's the original one or a new one, and, and see this world that is possible where everybody has a place and that there is enough room for everybody and that we are all moving toward the future together. And so let's move there in a harmonized way. And so I hope if anything, this book does challenge people to think or challenge kids to think about racism. I hope it does. Um, and I, but again, I also hope that it will create another generation of Star Trek lovers who will want to go check it out and find out what it was all about in the first place. So you guys, normally on the show, I have a lot of performers and we talk about different things they've learned from other performers, that kind of thing. Uh, so I'd love to kind of spin this a little bit towards what you do in particular. So uh, what is the best piece of advice someone ever told you about your profession that you still think about and you still use today? Something I've been thinking about a lot is my agent, um, Lori, who's incredible. She told me to not really worry about how I sound and just to like write so, or to write or to draw or whatever it is you're trying to work on. Just not to, to think too much about if you're going to sound silly or what, just put it down because, and to keep it and to always just keep all those things because sometimes you find a little gem in something and, and that can stick with you. And I think that's, that's true. Cause sometimes you look back at something or an idea doesn't work today and you end up throwing it, but it's it, something about it sticks with you and you end up using it again. So like, even if you end up throwing away some art that you made, or something you did because you need to start over, it's not lost art. It's still there, you know, and you might end up using a piece of it for, in something else you do, and that's okay. I think mine is one, a quote that a lot of people requote from Toni Morrison, and that's, if you don't see the book that you want to see, write it yourself. And I think I've definitely have taken that quote and that advice very seriously. <laughs> and that's what's really kind of been my compass of, of how I write and who I'm writing for. All right, great answer. Now, last thing for today, you know, whether you guys realize it or not, you are now part of the Star Trek universe. So, yes. Yeah. So, what is the best thing about being a part of this family? I mean, well, it, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I feel like I've been part of the family since I was seven years old. So, <laughs> I like that I'm like honorary. And now I feel like I'm honorarily indoctrinated into the, into the universe. Um, you know, my hope is that the community, of people who identify with Star Trek are the people who are also out in the real world trying to make good change happen, that they're trying to make the world that they've fallen in love with on TV a reality. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. It's like, I don't really quite feel worthy. I mean, I think that I'm always so I'm blown away by Star Trek fans because they're such, they're so devoted and they're so knowledgeable and they're so smart. And I mean, they're really like the good side of the world in a way when it comes to, you know, um, it, 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 it's, it's exciting to be able to make art, you know, fan art really, you know, in, in a children's book and to be able to reach maybe a new audience um, with such an important, you know, part of our culture. It's, it's just really, it's, it's meaningful and it's, I'm, you know, it's, it was a, when I saw the manuscript, I was like, this is an important project. And I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And I'm just, it's, it's nice to be able to, you know, do something like this. It's just really special. So. Well, great answer, you guys. And once again, the book is To Boldly Go, How Nichelle Nichols and Star Trek Helped Advance Civil Rights. Angela, Lauren, uh, thank you guys so much for chatting with us today. I mean, Nichelle will be so proud of what you've done and that you're continuing her legacy in this different way that, like you said, Angela, no one's done a kid's book about this before. And it's kind of mind boggling because it's the perfect kid's book. It's such a great inspiration. Uh, you guys did really wonderful work on this book. So I wish you both a lot of success with this and, uh, and everything else you guys do. I mean, yeah, it's great, great work. I hope that you're proud of it also. 
Thank you. Very it's proud of it. So sweet. Thank you. I'm so glad to share it with Lauren. She's amazing. Angela, you're awesome. that's it for this week's episode of trek untold until next time don't forget to follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at trek untold all one word if you'd like to directly support this podcast please consider becoming a patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trek untold which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.